Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, brother. Thanks for having me. Also on board today is senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, good to have you back. Great to be here, man. Thank you. And joining us this morning, making his return to the LP podcast, is Lincoln Project co-founder Steve Schmidt. Steve, glad to have you back. Hey, Reed. Good to be here. So let's talk about this. Today marks 100 days since the U.S. Capitol was sacked. Members of Congress were running for their lives, all because Donald Trump had instigated a big lie, not only before Election Day, but during the transition. Hundreds of people marched on the Capitol. One Capitol police officer was killed. Five more people lost their lives. And it became the first non-peaceful transition in the country's 244-year history. And as we see that, what I see anyway is that that was not the end point of something, but really the beginning of what I think we're living in now, which is a very royal politics on the right, but is now infecting in a pretty big hurry America writ large. And so, Steve, as you look back on this last hundred days, is there anything that you've had a chance to reflect on that was of a surprise to you or anything that's particularly concerning as you're now looking back? Let's talk about why it's important. Let's first talk about the person we're talking about. We're talking about Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump is the former president of the United States, but he is also the undisputed leader of an extremist, undemocratic movement in the United States. By every conceivable definition, he's the frontrunner for the 24 Republican nomination. And in fact, I would argue that he's the presumptive nominee. It's his for the taking. That's the first piece. The second one is that I profoundly believe wherever you have bottom-down accountability, so for example, after the financial crisis, there was no accountability for anybody on Wall Street. Millions of American families lost their homes. Now, these people who stormed the Capitol in a murderous insurrection are criminals. They should all go to jail. But they were incited there. They were incited. They were incited to attack the Capitol to stop the counting of votes that they were told were illegal, that were illegitimate, that were fraudulent. They were told that they all came from the inner cities, code word for black. They were told that they came out of Detroit and Philadelphia and these other places. And the result was that Trump had the election stolen from him. Now, we predicted all of this before the election. You, most of all, of everyone in this group, Reed, you said hundreds of times as we talked to donors, as we talked to supporters, that 
this isn't over until the moment that Joe Biden takes the inauguration. So what happened in November and December? Donald Trump went out and demanded fealty and loyalty inside his cult of personality, inside the Republican conference, demanding that people agree that the freest and fairest election in American history was fraudulent. The entire system is based on faith and belief and its legitimacy, faith and belief. And he poisoned it over November and December, all leading up to the terrible day of January 6th, which is one of the most important in the history of the country, because it's the day where the tradition of the peaceful transition of power that started in 1797 ends. And so what happens on that day is a mob gathers on the Capitol Mall, is incited by the president, marches on the Capitol. You have paramilitary elements that are coordinating using military tactics. You have people wearing Camp Auschwitz shirts and six million wasn't enough. You have white supremacists, white nationalists, and people do violence. They come into the Capitol. They defecate in the hallways. They urinate on the hallways. They tear down the American flag, raise the Trump flag. They break into the floors of the Senate and the House. And they seize the Capitol. So in due time, the Capitol is restored. Federal control is restored. And that night, 147 members of Congress, all white, all Republican, vote against the certification of the results. These results were certified by the states. They had no basis other than the lie to object to them. And so on the basis of that lie, they voted. It materially happened in this world. It's recorded for all time. And in that vote, what they did is they voted to throw out on the basis of because they're black, and therefore we suspect their votes are fraudulent, millions and millions of votes for the purpose of making the loser the winner. So intention matters, and so does outcome. What if they achieved the outcome they had wanted to achieve? The American Republic would have fallen. And so in the end, this didn't happen 80 years ago. It didn't happen 50 years ago. This didn't happen six months ago. This happened 100 days ago. And there's a real question in my mind, can a democracy survive that has no capacity for memory? So, Rick, to that end, I saw something earlier this year that said that the news story of the day in 2020 had something like a 72-hour lifespan, with the exception of COVID and the election, right? Anything else had three days and that was it. How is it that we can remind people what this means and how do we make it matter to John Q. Public or Joan Q. Public? I think we had in this country for generations the luxury of presumed resilience. We thought for generations, hey, this thing works. We may disagree. We may push and pull. We may have fights and we may have intramural scrapping, but none of it's existential. It's not going to kill us. You know, everything will be okay in the end. Well, everything wasn't okay in the end. We came within not hours, but minutes of this country falling. That's not putting too fine a point on this. If that one Capitol Police officer had not 
taunted the mob and led them away from a group of senators. And in that group of senators was Mitt Romney. Does anyone think that mob wouldn't have murdered Mitt Romney? Does anyone think that mob wouldn't have killed Nancy Pelosi? And, you know, the idea that you can memory hole that day is central to the Republican Party right now. It is central. That's why they never discuss it. They never bring it up on Fox. They hide it. They pretend it didn't happen. They blame Antifa. They blame Black Lives Matter. They understand the scope of the sin. They understand how close we came that day to this country no longer manifesting itself as a small D Democratic and small R Republican government. And the people that inspired them and drove them and pushed them from Donald Trump himself to Rudy Giuliani to Donald Trump Jr. to Mo Brooks to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, they kept telling the big lie. The big lie underpins their justifications of the attack. Well, you tried to steal the election. This is a natural response to that. No, this is an unnatural response. This is an unnatural behavior. This is not America. And we have to keep dismantling the big lie. And we have to keep telling the story of the sixth because if we don't, there will come a moment where it's not a bunch of cosplayers in crappy tactical gear they bought off of eBay. There will come a moment when enough serious, trained, dangerous people will say, you know what? They didn't respond. Nobody got held accountable. Let's do it again. Maybe this time we'll be lucky. Remember, you know, a lot of coups and a lot of revolutions, they don't work the first two or three or four attacks in. They work on the seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth attack in. And the very crafty people behind the nationalist populist movement, and that's the Bannons, the Mercers, the Millers, these are not dumb people, but they know how to make dumb people angry. And they know how to make dumb people believe a phony version of history. And so we've got to be very clear about shining a light on both what they are and who they are, and also on the facts of that day. Because the facts of that day, in a functioning democracy right now, we would have already seen Josh Hawley and Rick Scott and Cindy Hyde-Smith, Ted Cruz, a bunch of these other guys in the Senate expelled from the body. Just would have. And a bunch of the people in the House expelled from the House. But we won't see that because the politics of today has become so completely zero-sum for the Republicans that they would hold, and they are holding, people who meet every definition of sedition and insurrection in their midst and protecting them every single day. So, Stuart, what does it say about the Republican Party that it started with Donald Trump, it was in his Oval Office, it was in his administration, it was in his campaign, it was the Republican Attorneys General Association, it was Trump super PACs, it was, you know, America First groups. You know, there was allegedly a meeting the night before at the Trump Hotel. A lot of people had to make a really fundamentally anti-American decision, conscious decision to say, this is what we're going to go do. And it's not about organizing a rally on the mall. They knew what they were doing. And so how does that happen? These are people who do not believe in democracy. They believe in winning at any cost. The greatest sin in Donald Trump's world is to be a loser. That's his greatest put down of anyone. And this idea that we were raised, you know, to be a good loser is important, to have civility. All of these values that we were taught, humility, helping others, these are all in Trump world weaknesses. And 
concern for others, your concern for standards, your concern for what it means to be part of a civil society, any responsibility you might have, those are all weaknesses that limit your ability to put yourself first. America first is really me first. And what's happened here as a seventh generation Mississippian seems very familiar, and that is the creation of the lost cause, where the Civil War was not about one side of America fighting the other over the right to own other human beings, but it was, you know, the war of Northern aggression, that we had these honorable men like Robert E. Lee, who owned slaves, fighting for what they believed was, you know, states' rights. And that's what's attempting to happen now, as Rick was saying, when they're trying to rewrite this. But the greatest danger that we face is not understanding these people, assuming that there is some normalcy here. I mean, most people who are normal, when someone else is acting abnormally, we think that they'll revert to normalcy. We even have a whole language, like they'll come to their senses. But that's not the case with these people. These people are organizing and proceeding and planning exactly as they want to. And they're very powerful and they're very patient and they believe they're going to win. And part of any democracy slipping away is there's a role for the pro-democratic side to relax and assume that it can't happen. And that's what they're counting on. And I think that's one of the major roles of the Lincoln Project, consistently sound the alarm. So, Steve, to Stewart's point, you know, we go back to 2015 and, you know, 15, you know, quote unquote, largely establishment candidates and then Donald Trump and everybody. No one took him seriously. I didn't take him seriously. You and I were doing a project where by December of 15, we had information and data that showed that the race was going to come down to Trump and Clinton. So we had a pretty good sense of what was going to happen. But then, you know, there was just a story in The New York Times yesterday about the fact that, you know, Republicans in Washington are still just, well, Donald Trump will fade away. He won't be a problem. We won't have to deal with him that much longer. He'll sit at Mar-a-Lago and he'll watch Fox News, but robbed of his Twitter feed and his Facebook page. You know, he's just going to get older and finally just sort of disappear. But at least from my perspective, that's never been something he's done. He's preternaturally incapable of being outside the spotlight for very long. There's a lot of things going on. You know, first is that there is a almost a delusion in Washington, D.C. around this question. I mean, he's not going anywhere. And the idea that this is something that's written about, talked about, speculated about, debated on cable news shows and newspapers, that Donald Trump is defanged because he doesn't have his Twitter account. It's just it's completely delusional. Unquestionably, he is in charge of the Republican Party indisputably. I mean, it's a premeditated naivete or willful blindness to suggest that he's not. I mean, there's just no basis to suggest that he's not. If Donald Trump says, I'm a candidate, he will be the Republican nominee. He's the Republican frontrunner. You know, Mario Cuomo was the Democratic frontrunner. He was never a candidate. You know, we score who the frontrunner is on the basis of metrics that include their polling strength, their fundraising strength, their endorsements, their ability to win should they enter the race. And unquestionably, he would Ted Cruz going to beat him? Marco? Holly going to take him out? 
Cotton, Nikki Haley. So he is the leader of a cult of personality, and he's the forever leader of it. He is supported intensely by tens of millions of people in the country. And though the Republican Party has shrunk rather dramatically, down to 25% self-identified Republicans in the country, though Biden is doing well and his poll numbers are high, the danger from Trump in this movement isn't over. And we should understand what it is. I think that there's a real capacity among humans, amongst people, right, to just be numb to danger. And this is a moment where we can't look away. We have to look towards the danger. You have to see it for what it is. Because if Trump and his people win a presidential election again, they have no intention of giving up power again. So, Rick, let's talk a little bit about as we moved past January 6th and those hours and days, you know, the the Hollies of the world, the cruises of the world came under enormous pressure. Corporate America started saying, I think, largely thanks to, you know, our initial efforts to get them to back off of these people. You know, then Joe Biden gets inaugurated. Donald Trump gets tried a second time, acquitted a second time. And then the world, as we know, starts to try and find its way back to the mean. But what we've seen is that if that fight has moved outside of Washington, it's now moved into the states. And so I want to know what you think about the idea that, you know, Republicans now are, you know, they've already done it in Georgia and Iowa. They've got this stuff going in Florida and Texas and elsewhere. I think Steve said, or maybe Rick, you said, when you come up in Republican politics, the whole thing is winning. I mean, that's what I learned is you win, you win, you win because of a couple things. One is you can't govern unless you win. And second, voters have a pretty short memory. And no matter how ugly a campaign it was, they're unlikely to remember what it was said or done, you know, the next time around. But we've now seen that come to the nth degree, right? It's now whatever ends you're looking for, the means will justify it. And we're starting to see that. So I want to talk to you, Rick, first about the, you know, what we're seeing in the states. One of the things we're seeing in the states is that, you know, Steve's theory that the Republican Party will collapse and become hotter and crazier is absolutely playing out in the states right now. You know, you're seeing these folks living this oppositional defiant disorder that defines them and feeds the cultural war and the grievance narrative that they want to hear every day. You're seeing that as now the definitional nature of governance in Republican-led states. You're also seeing they're trying to shove the Overton window on both January 6th and the rest of their political movement right now by saying there are these existential threats on the outside. BLM, Antifa, Mexican caravans, all the things that are out there sort of lurking and sort of appendant in their minds at all times. I think one of the things that's dangerous for our friends on the Democratic side right now is the illusion that they can shame any Republican. The idea that they can offer Republican voters some kind of policy alternative to the GOP because they have nothing like that. They have nothing like that, and they, by definition, never can because the Republican Party's goal now is to hermetically seal itself from any other outside idea, including all the ideas they claim they used to believe in, and stick purely on the path of unless we win, we all die. Unless we are victorious, we all die. Unless we take back the House and take back the Senate, they will kill us. And that's literally the message now. If you don't take back the House and the Senate, we will be killed. And, you know, this is, again, a part of this long-running pattern throughout history. It's iterated throughout history dozens of times that 
if you can convince your people that anything outside of your political space isn't just a difference of opinion or ideology, but an existential threat to your life, you're going to end up in a situation where people will do very bad things, they will do very crazy things, and they will keep getting crazier and crazier as we go forth. Now, there's a fundamental weakness on the Democratic side right now that I think they're really missing out on. And that weakness is very simple. No matter how cuckoo the Republican Party is right now, the Democrats have it in their own hands to control whether or not they get to hear the following two phrases in January of 2023. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. In both of those cases, the Democrats right now who are starting to do as they do, which is to pursue narrower and narrower sets of legislative interests that are not consonant with the whole of the country, there are going to be votes on defunding the police in the House. There are going to be votes on every damn obscure thing. And I mean, they're going to go and they're going to spend months and weeks on whether we should have four more Supreme Court justices, which is just food for a Republican message machine that has enough voters out there in the country and the way the country is districted right now to return Kevin McCarthy to the speaker's chair and to return Mitch McConnell to the majority leader's position. And if they think for a second that the Republicans bullshit at the beginning of Joe Biden's term about, well, don't be divisive, Joe. We've got to all come back together. We've got to. No, they will impeach Joe Biden. They will impeach Harris. They will blow up this administration from top to bottom. And guys, we know this because this is the kind of shit we used to do. And, you know, the honest answer is we all helped in various capacities build this model of victory uber alice. And they're going to reiterate it. and They're going to do it again if they win back the majorities. So, Stuart, do Republicans care about governance at all, like actually doing their job? I just I refer to a tweet by South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem that, you know, illegal immigrants aren't welcome here. I don't remember the exact words, but don't bring it here. And then you've got down in Texas where for the second time in like six weeks, the power went out again because the grid is so unstable. The state of Texas decided to be on its own when it came to electricity. Why do they go to work every day? Is it just to be performative assholes? I think the purpose of the Republican Party is to beat Democrats. And that's it. As I said this before, it's not a political party. That's a cartel. There is no higher purpose to the Republican Party. Perfect example. I mean, take infrastructure. They controlled all the levers of government for a while. They could have passed an infrastructure bill. They didn't. Now, Biden has come into office. Democrats have the House and the Senate. They're moving forward on passing an infrastructure bill. And you have Mitch McConnell who really is one of the more pathetic examples of what you don't want to happen to any person when they go to Washington, who is complaining about, the, well, we want an infrastructure bill. We just don't want this one, which is, I mean, it's absurd. It's like Obamacare. They had years to present an alternative to Obamacare. They never did. Governing is actually about getting shit done. And that's not what the Republican Party is about. And this is why Donald Trump was not an oddity of the Republican Party. He was an inevitability of the Republican Party. Because when you're not a governing party, it doesn't matter how ridiculous the leader is. You want someone who can express your anger and your grievance. And Donald Trump was the perfect vessel for that. So, you know, now you have these people who in our system have been superbly educated. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, that idiot senator from Louisiana, Kennedy, you know, who went to Maudlin College at Oxford where you have your own private deer park and your own private servant called a scout. 
who thinks that the way to talk to Republicans means that you sound like some character, like, really, really. And they don't have a way to connect with Trump voters, these non-college educated white voters. So they see their way to connect with them is through race. That if I prove that I will vote to disenfranchise black voters, if I go out and say, if you don't like a cop, call a crackhead, all of this, these people will like me. Now, in another world, these people would have been responsible conservatives. They would have actually used the education they have, used the experience they have in government, and tried to be what some of these Republican governors are out there, like Hogan and Scott, Baker in Massachusetts. They are responsible human beings that do the boring business of government. But that's not what these people decided they want to be. They want to rise in the Republican Party. And to rise in the Republican Party, you have to be willing to say, something more outrageous and stupid than the other person and something more racist. And that's not going to change. So to that end, Steve, twice this week, Tucker Carlson has gone on a rant about the white replacement theory that's been going on for over 100 years that you can give us a little bit of background on. I did a thing Wednesday night at the 92nd Street Y with Michael Steele, who was with us earlier this week, and Mike Barnacle. And Mike Barnacle said white replacement theory in the U.S. nowadays is just being mad that white people don't have enough babies. But what's the broader impact of that kind of language? And explain to us how it's not an accident. This is not an old idea that he's talking about. So let's talk about the idea, because we know from the introduction, really, of the idea, it's mainstreaming how it all ended up. And let me just walk you through real quickly. There was a French aristocrat and writer, and his name was Arthur de Gobineau. And he wrote a series of essays between 1853 and 1855, 1856. The essays were called An Essay on the Inequality of Human Races. And he divided the races into white, yellow, and black. And de Gobineau was incredibly pessimistic about the future of civilization and the future of humanity because of the inevitable mixing of the races and the dilution of the white race specifically, which was the master race. And he coined a phrase for the white race in his theories. He called them Aryans. And so the superiority of the Aryan is something that is studied written about and built on from this moment. This idea that there are inherent qualities of character and intelligence that are associated with race. Now, it's the Nazis who really pick up on de Gobineau's theories as they develop German racial theory. And so let's get into what Tucker Carlson's saying. He's saying that the third world people will come here and take from you. Clearly meaning there's not enough resources, there's not enough space, there's not enough to share. Their presence strips from you. Now, I believe the story of immigration in this country is not one of taking. I think it's one of giving and building. But put that aside. What Tucker Carlson is arguing 
is that inherently those third world people are less than, less than you inherently on the basis of race. And you lose if they come. You have problems. They are the cause of the problem. Now, in Germany, there were a group of people who were blamed. And of course, they weren't Mexicans or Guatemalan or Hondurans. They were the ethnic and racial minorities that were present in that place at that time. And one of those groups were the Jews who made up 0.75% of the population. And by the time you get into the 1920s and the 1930s, where you have an extremist national socialist ideology, which is different than the national populist ideology of Trump on many levels, but you have an ideology that seeks to blame someone for all the problems in Germany, the hyperinflation, the decay of the democracy of the Weimar Republic, the humiliation of the loss of the war, the terrible economy. So they blame the stab in the back, the betrayal. On who? An incredibly small part of the population. And so what Tucker Carlson is saying is that people that are inherently less than are coming to take from you. That character is on the basis of racial origin. And that theory played out from Gobineau's first writing it over the course of almost 90 years until 1945. And we saw the consequences of that theory in the deaths of 100 million people by the end of the Second World War. That's where it led. So by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, these theories are all gone. They are eradicated. They are rejected because we see the terrible human consequence that comes. So these theories become the province of the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists, the idea that the brown people are having babies, but there's zero population growth amongst the white people. That's what Tucker Carlson is saying. And so let's go back to Germany again. This was foundational to national socialist policy. When Hitler took power in the early 1930s, German couples who were married who met the conditions of the racial laws, ultimately, were given loans by the government when you got married. And as long as you had children, you didn't have to repay the loan. So kid number one gave you two more years of loan forgiveness. Kid number two gave you four. Kid number three gave you more. So the entire governmental system was incentivized in producing Aryan babies. There's nothing new here. And the fact that News Corp, the most corrupt company in the country, cannot recognize what it is, a direct lineage connection to the racial theories that got 100 million people killed in the middle of the 20th century. It is poison, it is un-American, and it is an assault on the very idea of the country, which is e pluribus unum, out of many one that we're a nation of ideas, not blood and soil. And Tucker Carlson knows exactly what he's saying, what he's doing, and what the meaning of it is. The ignorance of history and so much of the national media who covers this stuff is appalling because what he is doing 
is the next metastasis of Trump's national populism. And this always ends in tragedy. And it already has. But we don't know how much more tragedy there is to come. We just know the last time that governments and political movements seized these arguments and made them policy, where it all ended up. And it ended up in the greatest tragedy in all the history of humanity. So, Rick, as we stand astride this moment in history, what has to happen between now and November of next year to ensure that as much of what Steve just went through is not able to bear fruit and ultimately have electoral success? We all talk an awful lot about the downside risks of what stands before us, and there are huge downside risks. I do think, however, that a lot of this is going to redound to how Joe Biden handles the next six to 10 months in office. What we've seen so far, and somebody said this the other day, I thought it was very well put. You know, Joe Biden, unlike most candidates, he flipped it over. He's been governing in poetry, but he campaigned in prose. Most people do it the other way around. I think it's really important that Biden start to deflate some of the poison in the system with white working class voters. And that means focusing on, as we round out COVID, focusing on jobs in the economy in a way that starts to see these folks see some meaningful changes. And look, there are plenty of things that cause legitimate resentment. The world has changed radically. Jobs have changed radically. You don't end up working for the same company for 30 years and getting a pension and a gold watch when you walk out the door. No one has that stability. I think if Biden could do some of that, you start to deflate it a little bit. But this also requires the most fundamental thing of all, and our Democratic friends have a problem with this, and that is to stay focused, that is to be disciplined, that is to not pursue every fantasy that you want to pursue ideologically, but to think about what Republicans are going to do. They're going to think about winning. And we all know this. We've done this before. When the Republican Party latches onto an issue that works, they will beat it to death. And it's important for the Democrats and their allies not to give them issues to beat them to death with. So defunding the police is a popular phrase right now. It's out there. The Republican Party might as well pay people to say it because it repels voters. It repels voters. They run from it. In the 2020 election, you guys know this, that the defund the police message was hurting with African-Americans. It was not helping. It was hurting. And the Democrats have to also really focus on, a, on an important thing. It's a culture war because the culture war is a war that Republicans have won over and over again. They've won battles in it over and over again. And yes, you know what? Republicans lost a couple big ones. They lost on gay rights and they lost on marijuana. But on a lot of other culture war issues, they have used it ruthlessly and brilliantly and persistently. And they have won election after election after election because you know what? Socialism in the minds of those people in Dade County is fucking poison. So instead of going down there during the election and Joe Biden standing in the middle of Caliocho and saying, Fidel Castro was a monster who should burn in hell, he has to worry about his far left flank saying, but socialism is awesome and people love it. They don't. It scares them. And if you want to win races, you have to not think that the wokest policy prescriptions and a 600-page plan is going to move people's guts and hearts. They've got to really focus on those things. 
you know, and that's one of the reasons the Lincoln Project exists. That's one of the reasons we were in the fight in 2020 and that we're going to be in the fight in the future. Sorry to our critics. We're still here. We're still going to be here. That idea of running the right kind of race and of disrupting the other side's ability to wage that kind of war against you is the kind of thing we're really good at. So it's important to start looking at the battlefield in the 2022 cycle to prevent a takeover of the House, which is very, very, very easily possible, and a takeover of the Senate, which, you know, it may be a tough map for Mitch McConnell, but as you guys all know, the NRSC is not bad at this work. They are good at the work of electing Republicans, and anybody who takes them lightly is a fool. So there's a lot of work ahead is the short answer to that. And Stuart, why don't you bring us home and tell us what you're looking at as we see the next, you know, days, weeks, and months as we climb out of the second quarter of this year and we start to stare more down the barrel of 2022? I think it's really a fascinating moment because the purpose of the Democratic Party is to govern like we were talking about. And they really can't go out and say what we're saying because they really do have to work with Republicans. It is not Joe Biden's message that the other side wants to end the American experiment. He campaigned and it's his nature and it's his history to believe that there is some residual good with the Republicans that he's governing with and that we can find common cause. So they have to proceed on that track. That brings us back to sort of the unique role of the Lincoln Project, because we're not a function of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And we have one obligation here, and that is to be pro-democratic. I mean, we all know from doing a million races that the 2022 elections in many ways, will be won or lost in 2021. And by that, it's a question of candidate selection, raising money, issue definition. So it's really important that we be out there, we be rallying people, we be articulating what the real stakes are here in a larger sense. That's what we're going to be about. Well, on that note, gents, thank you so much. If you're looking for Steve, You saw him on LPTV this week. You're hearing him today. I think you'll probably see a little bit more of him. You can find Stuart on Twitter at Stuart P. Stevens. And you can find Rick at The Rick Wilson. And of course, you can find me at Reed Galen. As we said, we just ask everyone to take a few moments and look back and think about what happened on that fateful day, January 6th, 2021. And look at it as not an end point, but a beginning point of the battle really being joined for American democracy you know, as we head into 2022 and beyond. And with all that, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, To join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.